Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us to understand how you run your universe, particularly how you administer the affairs of history on earth and what's revealed and what we can know and what we can understand so that we might have a worldview that reflects the truth and we might understand why the gospel is what it is and why we must preach it. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, if you want to turn on your printout from last week to the slide here that I have up on screen, 1 Kings 22, 19-22. Now, let me give you a little background here about what was going on behind the scene. Or on the scene. I think I used these terms last time, but I can't remember for sure. But if I did, I'll reiterate them. There's three things that we need to know. On the scene, which is what's in history, behind the scene, what's happening in the heavenly sphere that we don't see, the unseen realm, and beyond the scene, the future purpose for what God is working out which we know has to do with messianic salvation. So on the scene, behind the scene, beyond the scene. Those are three categories to think about. So turn in your Bibles. You'll you'll need your Bible open here to 1 Kings 22. And let's just see what happened. I'll just read a big section of scripture here so we know what led up to this council meeting or how the council meeting explains what's happening on, in history might be a better way of looking at it. 1 Kings 22, and I'm going to start with verse 5, if you want to follow along. 1 Kings 22, starting with verse 5. Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, please inquire for the word of Yahweh today. And then the king of Israel, now remember that's the northern kingdom, assembled the prophets about 400 men and he said to them shall I go against Ramoth Gilead for the battle or should I refrain and they said go up for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king so 400 prophets told him go into battle Um, so Jehoshaphat said is there no prophet of Yahweh here that we might still inquire from him so he'd already heard from 400 but he was wanted to see if there's somebody else. Verse 8, And then the king of Israel said, jo, jo, uh, Joseph had, Is there still one man to inquire of Yahweh? Oh, excuse me. Then the king of Israel said to Joseph, had, There is still one man to inquire of Yahweh through him, but I despise him, for he never prophesied anything good concerning me, but only bad. Micaiah, the son of Amiah, the Joseph had said, The king should not say so. Then the, the king of Israel summoned a certain court official. And he said, quickly, fetch Micaiah, son of Amiah. I was talking, by the way, with my grandson on the way down to Iowa to do a funeral, which I did yesterday for my mother-in-law. And thank you, Gospel Grace Fellowship. There were flowers there uh, in the funeral home that came from the church for my mother-in-law. So I thank everybody for that. And uh, he's a gra- he's a very very brilliant college graduate, and I've been talking to him about a biblical worldview. He's not a Christian, but I was talking about this whole thing. I told this story about Joseph and everything. And one of the unique things about Israel, um, and I'm not just talking about the Northern Kingdom here, but the whole idea of Israel in the Old Testament is the prophets are have a role. And it's not to be a propaganda uh, advocate for the monarchy. The prophet's role is to speak authoritatively for God and rebuke kings if they need to be rebuked. Okay? And that's a very important, unique thing. And I've been, I argued, because this is the kind of a political discussion my grandson and I were having, was that America's uh, idea of divided government didn't come from the Greeks, it came from Moses. That's right. And if you go back, for example, to Deuteronomy 17, 
the, Moses, uh, the king was supposed to read the scriptures to see what God was saying. And the prophets were there to rebuke kings. And so uh, they had to fear God and not the king if they're going to be a true prophet. And so Ahab, who was a wicked king, doesn't like Micaiah because he doesn't say anything good about him. So he's going to get fired as the press secretary. <laughs> All right. And a little uh, anachronism there. Verse 10, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were each sitting on his throne, dressed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria with all the prophets prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, son of Kaniah, made horns of iron for himself and said, Thus said Yahweh, with these you shall gore the Arameans until finishing them. All the prophets were likewise prophesying, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph, and Yahweh will give it to the hand of the king. Then the messenger had gone to summon Micaiah, said to him, Please now, the words of the prophets are unanimously favorable to the king. Let your words be as one with them and speak favorably. In other words, don't rock the boat. Isn't that kind of like what it's like today? If you don't agree with the unanimous opinion, so-called, then you're a resistor and a naysayer and you must be evil. You know, I see a lot of similarities, frankly. Verse 14, so Micaiah, so um, sort of tongue-in-cheek, goes along with it. And Micaiah said, as Yahweh lives, surely only as Yahweh speaks to me, that I will speak. So he starts out by saying, I'll only say that. And then when he came to the king, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to the battle or shall we refrain? And he said to him, go up and triumph and Yahweh will give it in the hands of the king. But interesting, the king sort of realized that he was not totally telling him (coughs) what he really believed. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) And then the king said, how many times I must make you swear that you will... not tell me anything but the truth in the name of Yahweh. He gets suspicious. <clears throat> Verse 17, so he said, I saw all of Israel scattered to the mountains like sheep without shepherd. Yahweh also said, there, was, there should be no masters for these. Let them return in peace each to his house. Then the king of Israel said to Joseph, did I not say to you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but disaster? So he still doesn't like it. So what's wrong here? A lack of love for the truth. A lack of love for the truth. That's what we have wrong in the church and in our society today. Lack of love for the truth. Go ahead, Eric. You know, this just reminds me of today. You and I have talked a lot about epistemology and how do we know what's true. In the postmodern era, truth is defined as whether or not a whole group of people agree to something. That's called coherentism. Yeah. Bob and I are what are called foundationalists. We believe something is true if it corresponds to reality. That's called the correspondence theory of truth. So that's being rejected. So you're going out in a culture where their understanding of truth is if 95% of everybody agrees. So it's identical to what we see here going on in the biblical text. No, something is true if it corresponds to reality. So you and I believe the Bible, and because we believe it doesn't make it true, but because it is true, we believe it. And that's the difference between biblical Christianity. Right. And you see, uh, in Emergent, uh, I wrote about this in, in a book, they believe in socially constructed reality. So not only do they believe in this coherentism, if it's coherent and everybody believes it, then that's good enough. That makes it true. They also say you can create reality if you get everybody to believe something. So if you do enough propaganda and get enough people to go along with it and get these 400 prophets all lined up, yay, 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 then then you just have to believe it. And what happens when it doesn't actually happen. They don't care. Uh, it, it, it's shocking, but what Eric just pointed out is exactly right. 
they don't have the same belief about how you know what's true and what's not true. Uh, I'm getting so sick of the local paper because it's just a propaganda arm for the radical liberals. But for two years, for two years, headline after headline, article after article, writer after writer, New York Times, Washington Post, all run in our local paper. Uh, The Russians uh, made a deal with the president to throw the election to him. For two years, over and over and over, it tells you, yeah, this is the way it is, this is the way it is. Then all the findings and everything, they spend millions of dollars investigating, and they said, well, no, we, nobody can prove that happened. And it was dropped, and I thought, I want my money back. Papers, you know, one after another, after another, after another, after another. Where is the retraction? Where are you saying, oh, we were all wrong. We lied to you. We lied again and again and again and again and again, and it never happened. Oh, no, here's a new one. Now start believing this. Dear saints, you can vote for anybody you want to vote for. Truth is that which corresponds to what is. Okay? And the existence of God is in a state of mind. God created the world out of nothing. And when we function in daily life, we're forced to use foundationalism. We didn't use that term yet here, did we? Okay, a little epistemology. Foundationalism tells us that by nature of the world we live in and what humans are as created in the image of God, we have ways to know what is right and true and to know what's false. And one of them is the law of non-contradiction. A is not non-A at the same time and in the same relationship. And the other one is the basic reliability of sense perception. That you see a chair, chair is chair, and you know it's really a chair, and you can sit in it, and you won't end up trying to sit on air. Everybody's supposed to do that. And we know that's true in the Garden of Eden. For the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat. You can eat of all the other trees. If correspondence isn't true, and non-contradiction is not true, there's no way to know what to eat. You see what I mean? And so I wrote an article about that in seminary. It is published on our CAC website somewhere. But see, when it comes to everything else, they throw it out the window. And they go to coherence. Everybody thinks it's got to be that way. When it turns out it's not, they don't give up. They don't quit. They go to another lie and just keep going at it. And they do that with religion. We got to have ecumenism. We got to become one with all the other religions. We got to meditate. We got to get into an altered state. Anything but believe the truth and live in the world God put us in. See things for what they are. That good is not evil and evil is not good. That God has spoken that the gospel is true, that the moral law of God is true, and that we can know the difference between what's moral and immoral, and that we'll be judged accordingly in eternity. That's a biblical worldview. And I'm telling you, dear ones, that's not what your neighbors think. Anyway, this morning they were saying that their Twitter accounts have been shut down simply because they were reporting on the assassination that happened in the military, and they're not wanting us to know what really happened. And I think that what you're saying is the truth is so hidden. Yeah, they're trying and, to obscure and it. we are, I mean, you, you don't know what to believe anymore because our people, even our news people, are not, most of them are not believers. Yeah. Let me just give an example of this correspondence theory, and we've got to get back to this. But listen, I saw an article in the paper that said, Climate change is horrible, and the environment is degraded, and loons, there's a danger, lack of loons. So I was talking to this guy, and so I'm out fishing on Lake Minnetonka, like I've been doing since the 70s, and there's loons swimming around my boat. And in the 70s, there were no loons on Minnetonka. Never saw. During the 80s, never saw loons. During the 90s, never saw loons. Now there's loons. And this guy says, yeah, I was out in Minnetonka 
my brother this summer, we saw loons swimming right around our boat. Well, if they're disappearing and their habitat's being pushed away and all the lead shot is killing them and all the stuff they're saying, why are they on Lake Minnetonka? And so this guy who's not a Christian, I said, listen, here's what I would just tell you. Believe your eyes. Because they want us to think that human beings on the earth doing exactly what God told human beings to do, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that, they say, is evil. And good is just nature without human interference. It's utterly pagan. All right, now, in order to know the truth, if you go to this socially constructed reality, then you don't have any ground for, well, the 400 prophets have to all be right. So you go and you get destroyed in battle, which is what happened, but, oh, how, how were they wrong? Well, there's more to it. That's just on the scene. We're going to go behind the scene, the unseen realm. That's where the scene changes here. Okay, so we've seen on the scene. So they were going to go for political reasons to do what they wanted to do anyhow. 1 Kings 22, 19 to 22. Micaiah said, so now he's speaking authoritatively for the Lord, for Yahweh. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I will entice him. And Yahweh said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail, go and do so. That's what happened. Now here is a scene of the divine council that I was telling you about. And we know that the divine council contains some spiritual beings, at least, that are evil. Because the Holy Spirit can't be a lying spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is God and he only speaks the truth. And holy angels aren't going to come and lie to somebody. So this has to be an evil being. And we'll see that from some other sources here. So we have a meeting between God and the divine council. Now, what happens then on the scene of history is, is God's will is done as a judgment. See, there are some scriptures in the Old Testament that that God gave them the desire of their heart but sent leanness to their soul. I can't give you the exact reference. There's such a thing as a judgment of hardening. You can see that in Romans 1. What happens there? Because they did not see fit to retain God in their knowledge, God gave him over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are uh, wrong or false or wicked. Dear ones, please understand something. A great gift of the Holy Spirit is a love for the truth. It says in Thessalonians that some people didn't welcome a love for the truth in order to be saved. And if you love the truth, it doesn't mean you have to have a certain political bent or it doesn't mean you can't have certain things that you value that maybe other people don't. Some people want to fill their yard with flowers and others plant grass and mow it. You can do what you want. God gives us some liberty and some within his freedom in binding and loosing. But if we give up foundationalism, what's foundationalism? I just told you. There are certain foundations that are grounded in humans being created in the image of God that are always the case. And even if somebody says, 
We reject foundationalism, and we have a different view. Any system's valid as long as it's internally coherent. It doesn't have to be attached to the real world. And that's the one most people have right now. It's not attached to the real world. That's why I told that guy, believe your eyes. They're saying, no, 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 don't believe your eyes, believe us. That's like Satan in the garden. Don't, don't believe what the Lord told you. Believe me, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. That forbidden tree is no different than any other tree. It's just a state of mind, right? You, you'll get something beneficial. We need to listen to God because he told us the truth. Do you have anything to say on that, Eric? Or should we just go on here? You know, um, with foundationalism, as Bob is talking about, so there, there's two competing worldviews. The postmodern generation has coherentism, so you have a socially constructed reality, and they believe something is true if everything about the idea coheres. But foundationalists say something is true if you make a propositional statement and it corresponds to reality. So the example I like to give is, let's say I tell you I have $5 in my pocket. That is only true in foundationalism if you open up my pocket and there's $5 in it. In the postmodern view, coherentism, that can be true if everyone in this room believes in it. So irrespective of whether there's actually $5 in my pocket. So that's why we can't start fighting the battle. See, what the left used to do is they used to say your Bible's not true. Well, we became very adept at proving that it was true. Exactly. So Satan changed tactics, and in post-modernity, they're saying, well, your Bible may be true or not, but you can't know it because no one can know anything. That's what yeah. post-modernity did. I was talking it? to my grandson about that, how earlier, um, there's, back there with the mic, please. Earlier, the rationals were going to just disconnect the Bible from science and rationality and disprove it, but that failed because of the 20th century, proving the Bible true again and again and again, the Dead Sea Scrolls, finding that pilot stone, proving the Bible true. So they dumped that tactic, and now they're saying nobody from any religion can know that something's true, so therefore reality is just a state of mind. So the Buddhist worldview, religiously, is just as valid as a biblical one. Everybody gets to have the religion, and nothing's actually true. It's just a state of mind. Reality is a state of mind. So I've been fighting that with critical issues commentary, with radio shows, with books, and with articles. I've been fighting that battle. Okay, yes. I was just saying that nowadays, though, we do have to be careful about what we see with our eyes um, because I saw a video where they used AI to make a video of President Nixon saying a speech that never happened. Okay. So he's saying, right, artificial intelligence. So he did... So, like, you're seeing a video clip of when the astronauts went to the moon, and it was not successful. And so he's talking about... So apparently the speech was written in case that happened, but he never said it. But this video, you don't know it's okay. not real. So let's talk about that. So humans are able to doctor videos now, audios and videos, to create things. But it still goes back to the test of truth that we're talking about. Because if you're able to ascertain uh, that the video was false, we're still going to foundationalism. In other words, someone can go back with two or three witnesses, study and read history, and testify that this was false. See, the Bible is teaching us things that we've always held near near dear in the West, how about the need for two or three witnesses to convict somebody? Why? If you just have coherentism, why do you need witnesses? No witnesses are valid at all. I have an illustration in my book about that. You can convict anybody of anything, or the, you can get off the hook even if you're guilty by saying, well, that's your reality and my reality. I didn't rob the guy. It's not a state of consciousness. Okay, the two or three witnesses are to establish the truth. In Deuteronomy 17, the king is supposed to read the scripture. 
Could you find that, Eric? Could you look into Deuteronomy 17, see if I got the right reference? Because the scripture is the truth of God, objectively. And Christians, we are not running to coherentism to save our Bible. We like truth and facts. And we say to the archaeologists, keep digging. Keep digging. Keep looking in those caves. Keep going and looking for the places that the Bible says exist. And we're confident that what will happen is our beliefs are collaborated by foundational truth and facts. The truth is our friend if we're Christians. We're not asking anybody to have blind faith. Yes, Eric. I I found that passage. One one thing I just want to mention to Linda, um, when Bob and I are talking about the reliability of sense perception, we're talking about the basic reliability of sense perception. So we're not saying it's infallible. But what Mm -hmm. you have to realize is that the postmodern movement is founded. Think about postmodernity. These people have religious leaders. And the postmodern prophet was Immanuel Kant. That's where it actually all comes from. Because what Immanuel Kant taught was that no one has access to the real world. You know, the numeral, but yeah. you're, you're stuck in what he called the phenomenal world, the world as it appears. So what he was attacking was the basic reliability of sense perception. That's where post-modernity came from. So you can never speak meaningfully, according to Kant, about what reality is. But that contradicts, for example, the apostle. Remember the apostle John in First John says... Uh, the things that we have seen, the things that we have handled concerning the word of life. They touched him. They saw him. They were eyewitnesses, just as Bob had said. So we're not saying that our sense perceptions can't be fooled, but they're reliable enough where we can even detect, hey, I've been fooled. Um, We can come to the truth because we can use our five senses. We have to reject Immanuel Kant. Remember, Immanuel Kant's assertion is self-refuting. He's saying the way the real world is is such that you can't know the real world. Exactly. Well, he's making a statement about reality. So all of post-modernity is built on that self-refuting argument. What Bob did when I was in seminary is he gave me the intellectual ammunition to kick the door down and say, I'm post-postmodern. And that's what we have to be. We have to be proud post-postmoderns. We have to go back to modernity and say, yes, truth can and must be known. Exactly. I remember so. the debates I was having because I was in seminary when some of this was showing up, and I was debating against it. But here's what was going on with the uh, irrationalists or the subjectivists. They would basically be claiming that if I'm not God and omniscient, then I might as well know nothing. That's, that's what you were just saying. Well, if I don't have godlike, omniscient knowledge of every possible cause or every possible effect, so I can predict everything, then I can't know anything. And so I was sitting in class and I said, well, I'm going to call that the, the little engine that couldn't. When I was a kid, it was, I think I can, I think I can. Well, now it's I know I can't. I'm pretty sure I can't. No, I can't. I can't. I can't. When it comes to knowing the truth. And we can know the truth. And we better know the truth. But because according to Scripture, we'll be judged according to the truth. Okay? Okay, go ahead with that. Uh, the king and the prophets and whatever. This is the text that Bob was talking about. It's in uh, Deuteronomy 17. And it's in uh, verse 18 and 19. It says, He shall write for himself, regarding the king, a book of the copy of this law, proved by the Levitical priests. Verse 19, it says, And it shall be with him, and he shall read it at all the days of his life, that he may learn the fear of Yahweh, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's and that he may not turn aside from the commandments either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in this kingdom, he and the children in Israel. Absolutely. So there you have Moses articulating a principle that, at least what used to be near and dear to Americans, which is the validity of constitutional law, that there's written law that transcends the whims of the king or the leader, whoever that might be. Now, people still give lip service to it, but how does postmodernity get into that argument? 
Well, in religion, they say, well, you can't really know what the Bible means. Words have too many meanings, and again, the little engine that couldn't shows up. We think we can't. We think we can't. I don't know what this means. How do you? Nobody can know what it means. So they give up. They can't know the Bible. But they get into all this esoteric theory that they come up with in their postmodern uh, coherentism. They think they can know all that. Okay, now listen. Yeah, that doesn't work. And so then they say, well, the Bible's a living document. Because the Holy Spirit inspired it, that implies it doesn't really mean what it says. So then we had to attack that. Well, in constitutional law, they're saying the same thing. The Constitution doesn't mean what it says. It's a living document. And so it's morphing with the uh, coherent, quote-unquote, uh, desires of contemporary society. And so if we decide that an unborn baby is not a human being, then it's not murder to kill the unborn baby. And that's how they do it. They, they don't want to do what Eric just read there. Plato didn't invent, the Greeks didn't invent this view, view that we, at least in theory, hold to be dear. Moses did, but really came from the Holy Spirit. Yes. Probably. Yeah, this is just a very brief tangent, and I apologize for it, but it's right in this uh, Deuteronomy uh, 17. Um, starting with verse 16. And, and we talk about the Constitution and, and how our, our early, uh, you know, framers of the Constitution and the early pilgrims were, had a biblical, most of them had a biblical worldview. So starting with verse 16, uh, talking about the king, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Okay? That's talking about military might. Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt, uh, okay, etc. Verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself. That was alliances. They married other kingdoms. And so we're talking about God told, you know, the kings not to multiply horses, not to, not to just get a huge military. You know why? Yeah. Because Yahweh was going to protect them. Amen. Amen. Okay, but that doesn't mean a, a modern government can ha- cannot have a okay. military. Okay, well, that's a, that's a valid point. Because, because yeah. I want to make this clear. Yeah. America is not Israel. Exactly, yeah, I agree And America has never been Israel. No. And America never will be Israel. America is a pagan nation. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so, so the third thing, we've got the multiply wives, uh, and then the uh, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Those Israeli kings were not supposed to just burden the people with taxes and take all the wealth for yeah, themselves. Yeah, exactly. They were to be autocrats. And so I agree with you absolutely, Bob. We're not Israel. But, and so we've got to be careful, <laughs> you know. But, but there's a general concept there of, of just the role of government, not, not being dictatorial, right. not taking everything. And, and, um, Limited so, government yeah, with checks and yeah. balances. My argument with my grandson was the concepts were found all the way back in Moses. Amen. All right. Thank you. And by the way, uh, I had a great conversation with him. And we both agree that atheism is impossible. It has to be false. Logically. He said, I know atheism is false. Because I talked to him about that before. Here's the reason. To know there's no God, you'd have to have universal knowledge, because that's a universal negative. And if some being had universal knowledge that there was no God, then that being would be God, and it would be self-refuting. So... He said, there's no, atheism is false. I know that. It's, it's impossible. Uh, let's open up. We got, Dana has some stuff we wanted to have share. Let's get, we got to go to at least one new slide. <laughs> Those papers are going to wear out in your Bibles. Now, you're going to probably have to bring them back, by the way. Don't lose them. Let's talk about the divine counsel. Psalm 82 is all about this divine counsel. So we just saw there was a divine council meeting where it was determined that a spirit would be a lying spirit in the mouth of those 400 prophets. And because God was judging Ahab for being a wicked king and not wanting to trust Yahweh, in fact, the whole northern kingdom was like that because they broke off and they went off into idolatry. Okay, so 
Psalm 82 tells us explicitly that there's a divine counsel. Because a lot of scholars didn't understand this worldview, some of the translations of the Bible hide it. You can read Psalm 82 and not even realize what it's talking about because they, some translations are making it seem like something other than it is. Just like when we talked about Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, remember? They were divided according to the sons of Israel. No, the scripture says the sons of God. Israel is special. They're unique. All the other nations are under the sons of God. And that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and elsewhere. So we know that was what the original was. Okay. The Masoretic text from 950 AD had something else in it. Maybe they just didn't understand it. All right. Psalm 82, 1 and 2 says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And then here's a direct quote. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Now, let me just fill in this worldview. We saw in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, that the nations, because of their rebellion, the Tower of Babel, I'll go, Noah, the Tower of Babel, Table of Nations, Israel being uniquely under Yahweh, they're put under the gods, but then there's the boundaries and there's human rulers on the scene that actually are deciding things on the scene. So remember the categories. On the scene, human rulers. Romans 13, right, Eric? Submit to their human, human rulers, pay your taxes, and so on. Human system of government. Beyond the scene, the sons of God that are part of the divine council that we saw from Daniel, an example of that. This prince of Persia and Michael. Michael was, for Israel, prince of Persia, one of the pagan nations. So, so many Jews telling us that. All right? This is the heavenly council. So he's holding judgment in the divine council. Now, I mentioned this Dr. Heiser, who's done a lot of good work on this, and he talks about the word Elohim. And that's what confuses a lot of people. Because when you see this in your Bible, you think, well, I thought we just believed in one God. I mean, it's only reasonable to ask that question, is it not? So is Elohim God, or is Elohim God's? What's the answer? Yes. Yes. So I was going to say, depending on the context, yes. There's one true God, but there are also Elohim, plural. Because... How is it that the one true God would judge unjustly? It's not possible. But if there are other beings that are given that terminology, they could certainly, they're fallen, they could certainly do things unjustly, just like human rulers do. And so we don't have to be confused. The meaning isn't that hard to see. The true God cannot lie. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly holy. He created the world out of nothing. He's non-contingent. He's eternal and so on. But there are these other beings that in the Hebrew scriptures are called gods. And we know that's true because Jesus said so in John 10. All right? So, I was going to cite Heiser on this couple quotes from Heiser. While the word Elohim is plural in form, its meaning, says Heiser, can either be plural or singular. Most often, over 2,000 times in the Hebrew Bible, it is singular, referring to the God of Israel. Elohim, the God of Israel. Then he says this in the next couple paragraphs down. Psalm 82.1 is especially interesting says Elohim 
occurs twice in that single verse. In Psalm 82.1, the first Elohim must be singular since the Hebrew grammar, says Heiser, has the word as a subject of, of a singular verb form, stamps. The second Elohim, he says, must be plural since the preposition in front of it, in the midst of, requires more than one. You can't be in the midst of one. The preposition calls for a group, as does the earlier noun assembly. The meaning of the verse is inescapable. The singular Elohim of Israel presides over an assembly of Elohim. Anything to add, Eric? You know, you know Hebrew? You know what's really good? You've just illustrated really good hermeneutics because, again, the term Elohim, the context determines how it's used. And within that one verse, the grammatical context shows you whether it's singular or plural. So that's, that's very good. All right. So um, one of the early discussions I had my grandson about this, because he studied the Greek religions and stuff in college. And as he studied philosophy and physics or his two interests, He'd wondered about this. So I gave, actually gave him Heiser's book. I said, the Bible knows about this. See, the professors will say, oh, the Christians are just hiding from you these things. They're not letting you know about it. And then they assume that polytheism is the only thing anybody was, including the Jews. But that's not true. The Jews are not polytheistic. The Bible's not hiding the existence of these Elohim from us. And it's actually explaining how it works. So we don't have a problem here. We just need to know what the Bible actually says, and it'll conform with the world we actually live in, because God cannot lie. All right, so the next part, I'm going to do the end of Psalm 82, and then we'll look at the chiastic structure. Psalm 82, 6 through 8, the end of the psalm, says, I said, quote, your God's, something the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. So these Elohim, they're part of this assembly in the unseen realm, aren't doing their job very well. They're they're not... uh, doing what Yahweh wants to be done. And he says, you're going to die like men. So these are not beings with these eternal, essential attributes of deity. They will be judged and they will die. What do we know about from the book of Revelation? Satan and his angels are going to be thrown into the pit. They're going to be subject to judgment. Now notice here, fall like any prince. There you have in one section, behind the scene, the gods, the divine assembly, the council meeting, and then you have a mention of what's on the scene, any prince. So the nations have human rulers. And as I've said many times, that's because God's merciful even to sinners. We may have really bad rulers, but they're not as bad as the demons. Go ahead, Harry. Bob, it's so important. You're probably going to come to this, but in that Psalm 82, 6 through 8, notice in the blue, Bob, has it nevertheless, like men, you will die. That really refutes those. The big view today in evangelicalism, if you talk to 90% of people, they believe that this is a reference to the judges in Israel. They refer to as gods, and they try to derive that from Exodus 18 and Exodus 22. The problem with that is notice in Psalm 82, 6 through 8 in the blue, would it make any sense that they're going to die like men? If they are, if they're if, already men, if they're already men, that's no yeah. shock. But the shock is if they're these angelic beings to die like men is a shock, and that really shows that they have to be angels. They're they distinct, can't be, yes. exactly. Uh, I have a question. Um, this is actually a question, honest question. Uh, in verse six, where it says, "I said, I said, you are gods." Now, is the 
Hebrew, or the, the word God's there, is that the Elohim? Yes, that's the okay. Elohim again. Okay, good. Thank you. Well, we can, let's explore that before we look at the chiasm. Turn in your Bibles with me to John 10, 34 to 36, where Jesus references this. Very interesting interaction going on in John 10. And that passage, by the way, is disputed as well. As far as what's, what's going on, what's, what's Jesus doing there? Okay, John 10, 34 to 36. Let me read it. Jesus answered them. Remember, they accused Jesus of being a blasphemer, proclaiming deity, making himself like God. Very, very important, by the way. It proves that he did actually claim deity. Okay, but here's, here's what he said. Here's his rejoinder. John 10, 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God. So there's Psalm 82. John 10, 35. Then Jesus said, If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. Now notice, I love the Gospel of John. You probably know that. I taught through it, one of the first books I taught through in my uh, life as a teacher. Sent into the world is John's way of explaining Jesus' pre-existence. That comes from the prologue, John 1, 1 through 8. It's the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, wasn't just born as anyone else, but he existed as God and with God from all eternity and was sent into the world. He's the apostle. He's the sent one. So the eternal God, now is Jesus mentioned at all in the assembly? Well, we, our friend Jim Palmer sent us a theological journal article explains how that is. Pretty interesting, based on Psalm 82. Uh, Jim Palmer was part of this church, and then he moved to Wisconsin, right? Yep. Anyhow, the fact is that God, who, who would be part of that, who sits at the right hand of the Father now, is sent into the world. And by claiming to be who he was, they called him a blasphemer. And so there, if, if these other beings some of whom are fallen, are called Elohim. Why is it blasphemy for Jesus to be who he is? That's John 10. Now let me cite D.A. Carson's commentary on John 10, 34-36. Dr. Carson says, Jesus defends his claims by quoting Psalm 82-6, here drawing exactly from the LXX or the Septuagint. The entire verse... And the next, Psalm 82, 7, developed a single line of argument. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. As Jesus uses the text, the general line of his argument is clear, says Carson. The scripture proves that the word God is legitimately used to refer to others than God himself. If there are others whom God, the author of Scripture, can address as God and sons of the Most High, i.e. sons of God, on what biblical basis should anyone object when Jesus says, I am God's son? That's, this is Carson. The argument gains extra force when it is remembered that Jesus is the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world. So the eternal God, the Son, is sent into the world. But under the divine counsel of these other Elohim, some of whom are evil beings. So the uniqueness of Christ isn't based on the terminology Elohim, or theos in Greek, but it's who he is, who he claims to be in the scripture. Does that make sense? And so Heiser also mentions this, uh, in his com commentary, John 10, on a John 10 re reference, he says, due to space constraints, 
have excluded the discussion of John 10, 34-35. As Jesus said in Psalm 82-6, in reference in defense of his deity. And then he talks about what modern commentators do, and he points out that part of it, some, some commentators don't get the divine counsel worldview, so they don't know how to handle it. And they think it's only about terminology, but it's more than that. It's about the very nature of Christ. And so he says here, uh, let me just quote part of this. The point of the theology produced by the quotation in context, says Heiser, is that Jesus is not only a divine son of God, but superior to all divine sons of God and his identification with the Father, the Lord of the divine council. And he says that he's published a paper on that, which I went and found and printed for myself. Okay? So there's a uniqueness to Christ. And it's interesting that Jesus cites this, and when he does, he cites it directly, word for word, from the Greek Old Testament. Jesus does. And so showing that this translation we're using is appropriate. Now let's see the bigger scheme here. The Hebrew Bible loves chiasm. And so here is how I found this from a different commentary I have in my logo software, but I looked it over and I decided it was very valid. Here's how it goes. A chiasm would be starting with something. It could be a shorter one or a longer one. And then going to a middle point and then going back to the beginning. So you end sort of where you start. It can either be a contrast or it can be synonymous. God is judging in the divine assembly. Verse 1. Verse 2, a charge against the gods, the Elohim. Verses 3 and 4, the charge violated by the gods. Verse 5, which is the center of the chiasm, result of the failure of the gods. Now it's going back to the end. Proclamation of the gods' former status. Verse 7, sentence of judgment on the gods. Verse 8, prayer for God to arise and judge the earth. So all of this has to do with this Psalm, with this Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 worldview, where God is ruling over the earth, but he uses means. And after Babel, where the people wanted to regain contact with the gods that had been judged earlier in Genesis 6 and then through the flood, God thwarted them by changing their languages so they couldn't cooperate with each other and send them off and establish the nations. And God rules through human rulers, but behind the scenes is the divine council. And that's what's going on, like in Daniel, in 1 Kings 22, in Psalm 82, there is an unseen realm that's going on. Now what I need to do, I want to, I'm trying to give you a few minutes, Dana. Where is he? There he is. Yeah, because he has some material about Noah that may be interesting to us. I want to develop this. Now, next week I'm preaching, and then the week after that, Eric's preaching again. So I'll be back here doing this, and we'll get more into this. I want to go into Jude and show you why God rebukes these spiritual warfare teachers. Because they want to put themselves into the divine council meeting where they don't belong. They don't want to let God run his universe because they think he might get it wrong. So they aren't satisfied being on the scene of history. They want to go up and tell the gods what to do, which is the role of Yahweh. And that's why Jude rebukes them, calls them dreamers and vile. All right, so I hope I got you interested in coming to Sunday school. Dana, go ahead. Um, last week, the, the incident with Noah and Ham came up. Uh, do you have in your notes in what context that was? I don't remember what, what the context, how that... You talked about Noah and Ham? Well, it had to do with the descendants eventually of Noah... Oh, okay. There would be the ones who wanted to build Babel. Yeah, oh. and I'm sorry, you know what? I think I remember we're talking about why was it, remember the Nephilim are filling up Canaan? 
Okay. So the justification okay. for judging Canaan yes. was coming up, and that's how that okay. text came Oh, that's came how it came up. Okay, yeah, thank, right. you. Yep. thank you. Okay. Okay. So, so in, in this incident involving Noah and his son Ham, after the flood, Noah planted a vineyard, and he got drunk. He became drunk. And then it talks about how uh, uh, Ham, uh, he, Noah was uncovered in his tent, and Ham, the father of Canaan, that's significant because Ham had other sons other than Canaan, so why is, was it focusing in on Canaan in particular? Um, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. So, um, and then it, later on in this passage in Genesis 9, it says, When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And so there are several things in this passage that have baffled people. You know what exactly did, did Ham do, and and why is, if Ham did the evil, why is his son Canaan being cursed, and and, and why specifically Canaan and not Ham's other sons? <laughs> so there's some some baffling things about this, and and this this pas- there's a passage in Leviticus chapter 18, which may give us some insight into what is going on here. Um, In Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, um, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. So as, as Eric pointed out last week, um, God foresaw that the descendants of Canaan would be very wicked. And one of the rules that, that God gave to Israel is just a couple of verses later, in verse six, verses 6 and 7, none of you shall um, appear, no, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives uncovered nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father which is the nakedness of your mother. So it it explains what the nakedness of your father is, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. So it appears that what may be happening here is that Noah wasn't the only one that got drunk. Both Noah and his wife could, could have been lying naked in the tent and, Sam, and Ham saw this as his opportunity. So he went into the tent and had intimate relations with his mother, which is the nakedness of, you know, the nakedness of your father is the nakedness of your mother. And so it may be that the specific, specific reason why Canaan was cursed is that Canaan was the fruit of this illicit relationship between Ham and his mother. It, it's interesting if that's... Yeah. I hadn't heard that, so... Uh, some people can look into it and see, uh, see what you think about that. But, you know, it's interesting. The whole Noah narrative is about boundary crossing. Right. And in which case that would be serious boundary crossing. Uh, and, and one other element of this is that Ham wasn't at all ashamed of what he had done. As he's going out, he's telling, he tells his two brothers what he's, what he's done. He wasn't ashamed. Okay, because, so. because in the ancient world, when a new king or a new chief clan of the uh, chief of the clan seized power one of the things he did was to have intimate relations with the previous king's wives or concubines and so you know in other words Ham is saying to his two brothers I'm the new head of the of the family here cuz I <laughs> wow okay um the, the 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 main example that everybody is familiar with is when Absalom rebelled against his father David. One of the things that he did was to have intimate relations with his father's concubines, and, and he was very public about it to show, hey, I'm the new king, I'm the new ruler. <laughs> All right, so there you go. More about the Noah thing. We're out of time, and um, in a couple of weeks we'll return 
Bring your sheets back again. Put them somewhere safe. Let's pray. Okay. Thank you, dear Lord, for the word. And may we understand what you've told us correctly so that we have a biblical worldview and we honor you and do not dishonor you in any way. Thank you, Lord, for what you've said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you upstairs. <laughs>